This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 7th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Culture and institutions are critical to enhancing our understanding of economic decisions, but they're hard to put into economic models. In their new book, Applied Mainline Economics, Peter Betke and Matt Mitchell provide a broad overview of persistent problems in economics and some ideas for addressing them. In your book, you talk about how uh, institutions and culture are uh, very important variables for economics, but they're not very well understood. And trying to build those things into economic models has been uh, sort of a big challenge for the last, oh, 50 years or so. Yeah. Um, So Matt and I, in the book, uh, it's important to remember that we're both uh, students of Jim Buchanan. And uh, Buchanan's main uh, approach to economics suggested that economics should be about exchange and the institutions within which exchange takes place. It's that institutional environment uh, which determines uh, the shape and uh, path of which the uh, uh, pattern of economic relations takes place. And Buchanan's sort of approach is one where you um, have the same players, you vary the rules, and you get different outcomes. So what the variation is in the explanation comes from changing the rules or changing the institutions. And then that will give us different outcomes. And so that's why markets behave differently than the way politics behave, even though the actors in politics and the actors in the market are the same type of actor. Um, and the exchange, and they're both engaged in exchange, but the way they engage in exchange is going to be different depending on the context. And so in the book, we try to you know, explain the consequences of that for the way we think about uh, not only just economic life, but also for public policy. And, you know, if you think about it, in some ways, it's not a, a very intuitive approach. So if you have a friend who uh, drinks to ex- excess or, uh, you know, a brother-in-law who is uh, bankrupt, it's typically not your first reaction to think about, I wonder what institutions drove him to do this. You know, we think, uh, gee, what's wrong with that guy? Um, and so I think it's very natural to see entire uh Uh, countries or cultures that are systematically violent or systematically prejudiced or systematically uh, poor and think, well, what is it about those people? What's wrong with those people? Um, But, you know, there's this long economic tradition and it's based on the fact that, uh, you know, at a large enough scale, humans are humans are humans that says, uh, really, you ought to approach the world through what one of our colleagues, David Levy, says is the the perspective of analytical egalitarianism. And this is the idea that you ought to analyze people as if they are the same. Um, And instead, this forces you to think about what's different about the institutions, about the rules. Uh, You know, one of the the examples I give is uh, the murder rate in um, Colombia is something like 10 times the murder rate in Costa Rica. Uh, I don't think that the Colombian people are genetically different than Costa Ricans. I think that they face different incentives and they behave differently. Uh, And you can see the same kind of variations across time. Um, The 13th century uh, murder rate in England was about 100 times um, the 20th century murder rate. Uh, I don't think the people in England suddenly changed in their DNA, but the institutions did change and people, uh, you get very different outcomes when you change the institutions. So in, in terms of trying to 
uh, incorporate institutions into our understanding of the world around us, what what's the most promising thing that we've learned? Well, that's a that's an important question. If you think about um, just a short little history of economic thought, if you think about mid-century uh, economics, institutions had basically been squeezed out of economics. And so the academic entrepreneurs in the second half of the 20th century on the microeconomics level. So on the macroeconomic level, of course, you have Milton Friedman and monetarism and and uh, and whatnot, and then rational expectations that challenge the Keynesian hegemony. But the Keynesian dominance was twofold. Uh, Samuelson uh, ushered in what he called the, the neoclassical synthesis, which was basically market failure theory on the microeconomics level and Keynesian macroeconomics uh, in the macroeconomics. And so on the microeconomics, one of the things that challenged that neoclassical synthesis and the idea of market failure theory was, of course, first public choice and uh, the idea that you had to let the second singer sing just because the first singer might not be all that good, the market, doesn't mean that the second singer, the government, is a much better singer. And so we had to examine the costs and benefits of government activity. Um, but also property rights economics came about, and that's Armin Alchin and Harold Demsetz and, and whatnot. And then you had out of that law and economics, Ronald Coase, uh, and then uh, obviously Richard Posner as well, uh, which is the application of, of economic analysis to legal regimes. And then you also had entrepreneurial market process economics, Schumpeter and creative destruction, Kersner and entrepreneurial alertness, and Bommel on productive and unproductive entrepreneurship. Um, and these ideas all sort of percolated in the period of time between the 1950s and 1980s. And then afterwards, you know, some other of these ideas uh, sort of uh, took off. And so we're trying to capture that basic set of ideas. And the question now is, how do you then study institutions? So uh, Barry Weingass has a, a new paper out, which is discussing Deirdre McCloskey's work. And uh, in that paper, he calls it the uh, the neoclassical paradox in which neoclassical economists have now come to recognize that institutions matter, but they don't study institutions. And so how are you going to study institutions? Well, that's where maybe economic history matters more as a method of studying it and also maybe on the ground like the way Eleanor Ostrom did with her field studies of common pool resources because the devil's in the details and the only way you get access to the details is through that examination, close up examination of the way in which individuals solve their problems in their, con in their daily conflicts, uh, where the rubber hits the road about what institutions are and what they do. And so, you know, economics is sometimes a bit hesitant about those kind of approaches because they like to have large N approaches for empirical economics. And this is more of an advocacy of a small N, either, you know, a case study or comparative case studies. Um, but that's where we learn a lot of these details at, and as Ostrom's work demonstrated. And, um, and that allows us to study institutions. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in some ways where we as a profession got off track is in this uh, general equilibrium framework of um, mathematical economics, which has this these very elegant models that show under certain conditions, uh, you got a lot of buyers, a lot of sellers, you have property rights well-defined, you have no transactions costs, 
uh, you have complete knowledge and complete contracts, then in that case, you'll get to an efficient equilibrium with a competitive market. But the problem here is it leaves all of the interesting stuff uh, to just assumed. It's uh, the interesting question is when and why are property rights well defined and when are they poorly defined? When and why are transactions costs low or when uh, or are they high? Um, how do you get complete uh, information or incomplete information? How do you get um, lots of uh, buyers and sellers and when do you have high barriers to entry? Those are like the most interesting, important questions in economics. And they're not, uh, you know, in some ways, a lot of economists think that they are beyond the scope of economics. Uh, but, you know, as Pete and I argue in this book, um, they really are at the heart of, of you know, important economic questions. They are at the main line of economics. So, Peter Betke, uh, to you, then you might actually say that economists, uh, maybe their sample sizes are too large? You mean in their macroeconomic studies? Well, I mean, even in microeconomic studies, if, if they like to have a large N to, to observe, observe behavior, then, and, and yet they're missing critical details, it would seem that uh, getting on the ground would require looking at smaller yes. samples. So I think that one of the benefits of the way that Matt and I approach this is that we don't really argue for a methodological exclusivity of any approach. We kind of pursue what you might call a multiple methods methodology in which one of them would be case studies and others would be large end you know analysis and others would be more historical uh, you know analysis and what you try to do is triangulate uh, so you can get access to it so i think that uh, the obsession with one methodology as the correct methodology was a mistake and i happen to personally because of my own background um, in uh, the way i did economics in the soviet case or whatever is I learned a lot from a detailed examination of a specific case. And so I have um, a lot of appreciation for case studies, um, but I also appreciate why it is someone might want to study the whole class of transition economies rather than just the particular Russian case or the particular Polish case or the particular Czech case. They might want to study all transitions. But I also think there's a lot to learn just by focusing on one of them and really drilling down. And so I, I hope that, you know, the kind of work that we're suggesting in the book promotes a kind of multiple methods and appreciation in particular of the case study uh, approach in addressing policy analysis and potential institutional design remedies. So, you know, to give you an example, uh, right now, one of the hot topics is randomized controlled trials and development economics. I think one of the questions that we should ask, that's a very useful, we learn a lot from doing that. But one of the questions that we should ask about that is also scalability and sustainability. What I mean by that is, could you take like a case, you know, the particular randomized controlled trial that we're looking at having to do with hospitals or schools in a, in a poor village? And now can we scale it up so it's beyond the village and it is it sustainable on its own? Or can it not be scaled and is it unsustainable, meaning it constantly requires foreign gifts in order to make sure that it continues to be viable? And I think that we only learn that by being, you know, deep into the woods of uh, weeds of all of this and really studying it. And that's, that's kind of our main idea is drill down. 
All right. So uh, for a young economist who would like to begin the process of uh, enhancing the the world's understanding of how institutions and we we haven't really touched uh, that much on on culture really what is your i know pete betke you have these sort of cryptic single sentences of of advice to young economists but what would your advice be to say as you like to say go out and get some data um well so one of the cryptic sentences was you know you should work on projects where history seems to defy what logic dictates. Um, so you walk around the world and you see like things that a standard theory should say, oh my God, that doesn't exist. So cooperation in environments where no cooperation should take place. And then we sort of study how it is that they elicited cooperation even in this most hostile environment. That would be kind of like what Eleanor Ostrom did with her common pool resources. We should have expected following theory that people wouldn't have cooperated as much as they did. There was too many opportunities for them to be trapped in what may be called prisoner dilemma games, and so they should defect. But instead, because of the institutional design that they engaged in, they elicited cooperation. They were able to escape their uh, the social dilemma that they faced. And so I think that the more that we unleash our curiosity about patterns of behavior in the world, the better economics is done, and that... Um, but in order to do that, economists need to learn not only mathematics and statistics, they really, really need – this is an argument that Matt and I stress right from the beginning of the book. They really need to learn economics, uh, the intuition uh, of economics, the, the beautiful logic of economics. But they also maybe need to like know some history, know some anthropology, um, you know, know geography, culture. Uh, you know, meaning that you can find out a lot of information, for example, in sort of secondary products of culture like novels and uh, movies and, and things like that, songs that people tell, jokes that they tell about each other. And we should just be open to all these different forms of evidence. Yeah. You know, um, this is not as sophisticated as Pete's response, but uh, I, I would say for a young economist, Take something that you're already passionate about and dive down deep. Uh, so, you know, on the way over here, um, I, I live in New Mexico and Pete and I were talking about it. And I was saying, you know, I've, I'm now starting to go back and read some of the histories of New Mexico. Um, I, my speci- very, there's a very specific answer to your question. I would like a young economist to go and look at the, uh, the property rights regimes in New Mexico because uh, uh, they're they're pretty messed up, <laughs> and uh, the, it's a long and sordid history uh, going way back to uh, Spanish land grants, where basically you know if you if you were friends with the king or with the um, uh, you know with the local uh, leader, uh, you could get several hundred acres of land, um, and then there were lots of disputes about who really owns the land and. Uh, um, well into the 20th century, it's it's been quite unclear, um, and so you know, take something like that where there's a mystery to unravel, mm-hmm. and the only way to unravel it is to understand economics and history and and geopolitics, and uh, I, I think you've got a, a makings of a great dissertation there. Yeah, we have uh, just a quick example. We have one of our uh, graduate students this year. He's brilliant young economist named Rosalina Candela. He's going to be um, at Brown starting in the fall. 
Um, but Rosalino's dissertation is on property rights in Italy after unification. So when you had the kingdom of the two Sicilies and then you had the unification and then you have this divide between northern Italy and southern Italy. But one of the real questions that Rosalino points out is the way they screwed up the property rights arrangements after unification in southern Italy. And that led to all these pathologies of, uh, to use Matt's uh, wonderful phrase, these pathologies of privilege that persist from then all the way to today and explains the differential growth rates between northern Italy and southern Italy. And that's because Rosalino was able to access the language because he's Italian speaking. He was able to, you know, study up close how it is that they did these, you know, arrangements and understood what was going on with the barons and whatnot. And so as a result, he was able to tell a political economy of this post-unification story, which generates this pathologies of privilege. You know, it's uh, it's interesting, but uh, what I take away from uh, the portions of your book that I've, I've read here is that in some ways we know less than we think we do and we continue to learn that we know less than we think we do. Yeah, I think it is def- it's definitely a counsel in humility in a number of ways. Uh, you know, there's the um, Hayekian perspective that the most useful knowledge in society is the local knowledge of time and place and it's uh, some, you know, to some people, it may seem you know banal, but it's very useful to know what the temperature is, uh, you know, in a certain community at a certain time of year, or um, you know what the latest fashion is in a certain community, because that's where entrepreneurs, um, you know, can profit. And um, y- because this information is widely dispersed, uh, it's it's impossible for uh, a central planner to put their hands on all of it and effectively allow a, a multitude of people to uh, fit their plans in with one another through central planning. Uh, but it's also, you know, humility comes from other quarters. It comes from um, the limits of, of what a bureaucrat can uh, assemble. It comes from understanding that sometimes institutions and incentives work in ways that we don't, that are surprising um, and can have long lasting effects. Uh, so, you know, the, the whole thing is uh, definitely a counsel in, in uh, humility, I'd say. You talk in your book about how culture rules as, as institutions rule, but uh, what do we know now uh, about how rules alter culture and how culture alters rules? So if I can take a stab at that, I think that you have to first separate between what you might call surface culture which are cultural products, and then deep culture, which is beliefs and history and, and, and whatnot. So surface culture is like what my colleague Tyler Cowan talked about in his book, uh, Creative Destruction, uh, which is the spread of all kinds of cultural products throughout the world with globalization and how that's come about. So if you look even just in Fairfax County, when Tyler and I first lived in Fairfax County in the early 80s, you had McDonald's and like one pizza place and that was it. Now it has all these wonderful restaurants and everything because we've had this influx of various different cultural influences. Those are surface culture products. When we're talking about culture in the book, we're more or less talking about culture as one of the determinants of, of institutions, which is if you think about institutions as rules of the game, they are – informal and formal rules of the game and their enforcement. And the culture comes into effect in the informal rules 
right? And it also comes into the costs of enforcing the formal rules. So if you try to pose formal rules that are not connected to the informal rules, the costs of enforcing those rules might be, in fact, prohibitive. And so culture can also be uh, so, you know, embedded in this idea of what are the transaction costs associated with certain kind of institutional forms. So if you think about the post-Soviet experience, Buchanan uh, wrote an essay where it's called The Tacit Presuppositions of Political Economy. And one of the things he's trying to get at in that piece is looking at what are people's attitudes towards markets. So one of the first things you learn about markets under well-defined property is that markets generate mutually beneficial exchange. It's a, a positive sum game, win-wins, not just win at the expense of someone else's losses or whatever. But we do know that markets in certain environments, for example, let's say that the only market that we experienced was a complete seller's market where the seller could dictate all the terms of exchange and there is no alternative supply chain to that seller. Well, that's kind of what happened in the, in the Soviet Union when you had to go to black markets to interact uh, or it's kind of like going to a scalper market, right, or a prohibition, prohibition market in general. And now what happens when you expose that market open to allowing it to come above ground, but you haven't allowed a new supply chain to come in, people's attitudes about that market are going to be different than the market in some other place. And so Buchanan wants us to think about those kind of ideas because that's going to impact how it is that the reforms are viewed as legitimate or illegitimate. And so if you think about what went on in the former Soviet economies in the 1990s, a lot of those reforms got derailed because the Defining of property rights was done for political interest group reasons as opposed to best practice in economics and a lot of non-introduction. Uh, so, for example, if you, unless you have trade coming in, which provides an alternative supply chain, you're going to get stuck again with sort of monopolistic, you know, uh, or barriers to entry that get set up. And I think we didn't really fully understand how successful – people who became the first new owners of property could lobby the government to erect barriers to competition uh, in their own markets. And so you could probably judge post-communist economies based on how open they were to alternative flows of resources from foreign exchange. And that the more open they, their markets were, the faster their transition went in the right direction. And the more closed off they were, the more difficult their transitions were. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that we, uh, I think, are starting to get a better understanding of is how attitudes about markets affect human behavior and what are the right uh, ways to engage in markets. So just to put it in a context that I, I think most people would relate to is, uh, you know, you're out to dinner with somebody from a different culture uh, and there are different norms about tipping um, and, you know, can have an effect. Well, let's think about that at a grander scale. What happens when people have different norms about what is legitimate to buy or sell um, in different times and, and uh, cultures? Uh, it has been considered completely taboo to have life insurance as yeah. a market. Um, or what happens when people have a um, treat, as the Romans did, um, unproductive entrepreneurship as sort of a uh, a noble pursuit that the most, uh, you know, 
prestigious profession to which one could aspire is a um, soldier or a senator, somebody who breaks stuff and somebody who takes stuff, um, versus uh, some the, the idea that, uh, boy, if you're in a trade, um, that's really a lowly profession. You know, maybe you do that uh, for a little while in hopes that your son uh, would actually grow up and, you know, be somebody who takes stuff and breaks stuff. So how do those culture, uh, evolving cultural attitudes towards, cha- towards exchange, towards what's acceptable to exchange, towards how, what's acceptable in bargaining, um, th- we're ha- starting to gain, I think, a much better appreciation of this. Uh, I think people like Deidre McCloskey, um, like Virgil Storr, are really uh, at the forefront of this. Um, and in some ways, it's kind of circling back to what uh, Adam Smith and others were talking about uh, quite a long time ago at the, in the main line of economics. Yeah, I think uh, Deirdre McCloskey is an excellent example of how uh, she sometimes puts the argument in terms of a contrast between her and other explanations. But um, what she really is getting at is kind of a combustible combination in which you have ideas um, institutions and practices all align. And when they align in a way that's for wealth creation, you get this giant takeoff and that takeoff has a scalar. But the reality is, is that she is right that the engine that drives this is attitudes that people have towards this behavior. You can't get that kind of explosion in growth and, and, uh, and uh, uh, economic betterment unless people believe that commercial practices um, at the beginning, in fact, are dignified activities. And if they're attributed not dignified activities, then you're going to get stagnated. Peter Betke and Matt Mitchell are authors of Applied Mainline Economics. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 